We have one more to go. Pastor Henry Duran is going to make that happen next week. Chapter 50. There may be a mixed multitude. There may be some ladies in there next week as they don't have a women's Bible study. So, But we yes, we will be back upstairs in the fellowship hall and there will be coffee and donuts. So if some of you kind of drop off to sleep here tonight, I'll, I'll be understanding. Not a problem. Genesis chapter 49. We're going to talk about God speaking to Jacob's sons in chapter 49. In actually chapter 48 and 49 as a unit, we're really looking at the completion of the life of Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, called by, by the Lord, called Israel. Um, really, this amounts to the punctuation of his last days. Jacob is God's servant, and he has been God's servant for many, many days. And, uh, you know, there is an, an effect that age has upon you, um, a clarity that experience brings to be able to see your life in the big picture and not in that, you know, it seems to me like when you're younger, you just, you see your life one day at a time and it's kind of uh, jerky. I remember when I was learning how to drive, the driving instructor told me to aim the car way off ahead, you know, a couple hundred yards. And Because if I tried to aim right in front of the car, I was, you know, moving it back and forth every minute. And it seems to me in, in some ways, as you get older, you see your life from a broader, with a little bit more objectivity. And you're maybe, depending on your life and who you are and what you've done, better able to see the Lord's hand upon your life and his work through the many years and many generations. That's our hope. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing, to see God's hand at work, to see some aspect of his purpose. And I really believe Jacob has that benefit here. And you, you know, for example, you see it in the life of David. You know, David had a busy life. I I think if you had gotten David one-on-one and had a sit-down with him, during the time that he was running for his life from his father-in-law Saul, he might have had some really interesting ideas about how God was working in his life or if God was working in his life. But in 2 Samuel 23, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of God, of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. So at the end of David's life, he understood that God had used him as a prophet. He understood that in in the Psalms and in many other cases, God had anointed him, spoken through him and used him. And I think much the same thing here in Genesis 49. Jacob has a sense of God's hand upon his life. In the last chapter, as he prayed for Manasseh and Ephraim, crossing his hands and lifting them up, he had a sense of God's hand upon him. So in chapter 49, verse 1, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, And listen to Israel, your father. The tone of this chapter is extremely poetic. I understand in the Hebrew, not being a Hebrew scholar myself. 
but it's filled with uh, Hebrew poetry progressions and poetic turns of phrase, multiple plays on words that we don't get because we don't speak the original language. When he says, gather that I may tell you what may befall you in the last days, probably better translated in the latter days, in many days to come from now. You know, people, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people are really kind of captivated with the future. Mostly because it's the thing that we do not know. You know, whatever you can't have, that's what you want. And since you don't know anything about the future, that just really gets everybody's attention right now. The past we've got. We're all pretty much living in the moment, more or less. Uh, if If you convince people that you could tell them What was coming in the future, there is almost nothing that they would not do to have that information. And so I dare say that he's gotten the attention of his sons here. Notice, not just what is coming, but what will befall you particularly. You know, I'd like to know about the future. Not as much as I would like to know what is to befall me and my family. I mean, that totally has to have piqued their interest. Can he deliver? No, but God can. God knows what's coming in the future, and if God tells Israel, then he will tell his sons, and this is the crux of the entire issue. If you've had a a father for any length of time, you've probably heard him say some crazy stuff at some time or another. Fathers are known to do that from time to time. Um, So they will at least, his sons will have some healthy skepticism. Okay, it's dad again. Here we go. But, you know, God is faithful. He says in verse 2, listen to your father. I'm guessing a guy with 12 sons, probably not the first time he's had to say that. Listen to your father. (laughs) It's interesting that he says in verse 2, hear and listen, both in the same. And it's honestly, it's kind of poetic a little bit. But there is a huge difference, isn't there, between hearing and listening. Hearing you do with your ears, but listening is very different. It is an act of the will. You can hear people all day long that you're not listening to. But listening is an act of the will. It's something that you do with your mind. You engage your mind to really. And, you know, you all know you can listen better or worse. You can listen a little or you can listen intently. When you're talking to someone whose opinion you value and they're talking to you about something that's central to your life, you really listen. I mean, like you concentrate. You're looking at their facial expressions. You're just, you want to absorb every ounce of it. That, that is, that's the way we need to listen to the Lord, isn't it? And I wonder, do I listen to God like that? Do I, when I read the scripture, when I'm doing devotional reading, do I read, do I listen? to the Lord in that way. When I pray, when I talk to the Lord, am I listening for his voice? Am I listening for the wisdom that he provides? An important thing. Jacob doesn't waste any time. 130 years old, he doesn't have any time to waste. He starts off here in verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. 
little very very Jewish there in that last part, you know, because you did this. And then he turns to everybody else and says, you know, he, he did this. This is what he did. Reuben's name means behold a son, the firstborn of Jacob and Leah. And he states in the beginning of, of the verse here, verse 3, states the promise of the first son, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity and the excellency of power. Reuben is characterized as exceedingly powerful and still unfortunately compromised and mostly by his own choices. Unstable as water, you shall not, shall not excel. Reuben, though mighty, is criticized throughout the scripture. In, for instance, in Judges chapter 5, in the Song of Deborah, because the people of Reuben refused to help against the oppressor of Israel, Jabin, Jabin and uh, Sisera, his, his general. In Judges 5.15, it says, The princes of Issachar, this is part actually of Deborah and Barak's song, the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, and Issachar, so was Barak, sent from the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Gilead being the northern, easternmost Transjordan on the east side of the, right where the tribe of uh, Manasseh and Reuben are. And they stayed and they did not participate. And they, they got slammed for it. They got cr- actually criticized. And the prophecy here of the, that Jacob brings is true. We have in the scripture no prominent leader anywhere in Israel, in any of the history of Israel, from the tribe of Reuben. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 10 tells us, In the days of Saul, they made war with the, the Hagarites, which were people in the, the area of Gilead, off in the east side of the Jordan, who fell by their hand. They dwelt in their tents throughout the entire area east of Gilead. Also in First Chronicles 5, we have a brief account of their captivity in Assyria living on the east of the Jordan River along with Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were the very first to go into captivity, even before Samaria and Israel and the northern uh, other tribes went. Uh, And at the very end here, Jacob, in verse 4, he adds, because you went up to your father's bed and defiled it. He went up to my couch. And this, of course, is a reference to the situation that we have recorded in Genesis 35:22, it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12. Anyway, Bilhah, not, not really in Reuben's defense, but Bilhah is, on the one hand, his aunt. She is the handmaiden of Rachel. Rachel is younger than his mother. And Bilhah may have been younger than Rachel. So it's his, she's his father's wife. It doesn't matter. You know, there's, no, there's no way to, to justify it. And, uh, she is his father's wife. There's no getting around it. That said, have you ever done something really terrible in your life and gotten away with it? No. No, you haven't. 
Nobody ever gets away with anything. Nobody ever gets away with anything. Okay? Very important. However, we have all done things and escaped public ridicule. We have all done terrible things and escaped public ridicule. And that, my friends, is nothing less than the grace of God upon our lives. God is very gracious. And as a proper parent, he warns us, often very enthusiastically. God is really good with warning. Really good. Generally, not always, but often, when a person finds him or herself as the object of public reproach, it is at the end of a long road of very private failures. A long series of warnings that God has given you, and at the end of that road, there's a very public rebuke in front of God and everybody. Reuben's shame in this issue is present whenever his name is raised, the name of the tribe comes up in Scripture. It is never forgotten. We're talking 3,500 years ago, 3,700 years ago, this guy made this bad decision. But at the same time, it's not foolish to make an appraisal of his character based on the facts and evidence. God knows what he's doing. And when God rebukes somebody so publicly, there is a purpose to it. Look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anchor, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Very interesting here that Simeon and Levi are addressed together. They're the only two tribes that are addressed as a pair together. Um, really interesting. Uh, Simeon means heard. As in, heard by the Lord, very similar to the Hebrew word for Samuel. Samuel means heard of God. And so, chances are, if you had the proper Hebrew pronunciation, Simeon and Samuel would sound kind of similar if you you were doing that. Um, uh, Levi means joined or attached. And the idea here is Leah named Levi. She conceived again in Genesis twenty nine thirty four, bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me. My husband will be Levi to me. He will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And that's where it comes from. All three of these boys, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, all sons of Leah, all probably pretty close in age, only a couple, three, three years, four years apart. Leah had a lot of kids. She was one of those moms that had, was always pregnant. She had a bunch of boys. Um, uh, Simeon and Levi, very close individually, and I think it's part of the reason the Lord puts them in the same uh, prophecy here. They, they had a sister, didn't they? Dinah. Okay. And so as the focus 
of Reuben's mention is his moral failure. The reference here to these two, to Simeon and Levi, is their failure. Verse 5 seems to indicate that they have weapons. And the history that we have from Genesis chapter 34 reveals that they know what to do with those weapons. At the same time, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. In their dwelling place, this is where they live. This is their wheelhouse. It's their comfort zone. It's what they do. Okay. Jacob says to them in verse 6, Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly, for in their anger they slew a man. In their self-interest they hamstrung an ox. Jacob wants distance from them for his heritage and his family's wisdom. He wants it separated from Levi and from Simeon. It's interesting, you know, that Levi, you can't think about Levi without thinking about the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood, like the law of Moses, as Paul describes it in the book of Romans, is the law of sin and death. It's what it is. It is a schoolmaster to drive us, to force us to the person of Jesus Christ and the grace that he allows. And you see this in the life of Levi. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling. He says here, um, the issues of anger that he brings up. You, you've probably heard before at some time or another, it's not the size of the man in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the man. You may have heard that somewhere at one time or another. There was a, a young man went to church here some years ago, great kid, and um, I, I met him in his early 30s. When he was in his 20s, he was quite gifted at this uh, Korean martial art, uh, Hapkido, I guess. And he had all kinds of belts and went, went into competition. And he was very skilled at it, competition and sparring and all this stuff and uh, uh, won trophies. And he, like a lot of men in their early 20s, he became enamored of, you know, pugilism and that, that he started going to backyard fights just to watch. He'd go to, and I don't know if you know anything about this subculture out there, you know, but it's a real deal. And you go into a fight and people pay money to go and then they have these guys fight and then somebody gets paid. Uh, the other guy, not so much. Um, and uh, he, so he went, went to these things and he was always, because he's you know skilled martial artist, looking and sizing people up and watching. And he, he, he told me, this is all by way of uh, sort of his testimony, uh, as he was sharing, he said he went to a particular backyard fight and he saw the guys and he saw this, this one guy. And he thought, what? Are you serious? He says, you know. And then he looked at me. He, I mean, he looked at me really hard. He looked at me in the face and he said, would have been the biggest mistake of my life. Now, I have no idea what he meant. I can imagine. I can imagine Anger. You can't look at a man in the freeway in the other car and tell if he has anger problems. You really can't. You also can't tell if he's armed. <laughs> but I can tell you one thing. You don't want to learn that lesson the wrong way. You don't want to learn that lesson the wrong way. This is, again, one of the advantages of becoming an older man. You think a little bit before you do dumb things. God help us. 
In their anger, they slew a man, and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. You know, uh, the way that this is written in the Hebrew, as I understand, it indicates a plural intention. It is not intended the way it comes across in English, that they killed one guy and killed one, hamstrung one. It's not what it means. It means that there was a large number of uh, individuals involved in this situation. Uh, it's definitely plural. Now, there's a reference, this, of course, as we know, reference to, the, to Hamor, the son of Shechem, from Genesis 34. And Genesis 34, 25, it came to pass. The third day when they were in pain, because these guys all agreed to circumcise themselves so that their families could be joined, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came boldly upon the city, killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house. They went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. And they took the sheep, the ox, and the donkeys, and what was in the city and what was in the field. And all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, they took captive. They plundered even all that was in their houses. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should they treat our sister like a harlot? Good question. Jacob holds these two responsible. And they, of course, they did the violence. The other sons just helped with the plundering. The outcome may well have been in the best interests of the family. Again, that's just the grace of God. That never be, means God endorses my sin. You go and you make a big mistake, you do something stupid, you sin against the Lord, and in the long-term outcome of the situation, you see, wow, God is so good, look at this. God is not endorsing your sin. Not at all. It simply means that He is so amazing. He is so amazing that he can use even the worst situation for the benefit of the people that he loves. And often, it's maybe not so much your benefit as the people who are around you who get blessed because they are close to you. In verse 7, Cursed be their anchor, it is fierce, and their wrath, it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them. And so the Lord does exactly that. That the distribution of property in a lot of the Tribes, we go through here tonight, we're going to talk about this distribution that takes place at the close of the book of Joshua and how the land is distributed. At the distribution, they were scattered. First, because Levi had no inheritance because they were never numbered as warriors and they were divided in different cities all over the nation. In Gilead, Transjordan, the other side of Jordan, in every different tribe, there were cities given to the Levites and the suburban areas around them. While Simeon, just interestingly, was an island inside of Judah in the southern Negev by just uh, slightly west of the Dead Sea, Simeon is surrounded all the way around by Judah. And that's Simeon's allotment. Um, in verses 8 through 12, we have the fourth son of Leah, which is Judah. In verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Jacob has more to say about Judah than any of his brothers with the exception of Joseph. Only Joseph has a longer prophetic utterance. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Actually, the name Judah means praise. That's what it means in Hebrew, praise. Um, In Romans, interesting play on words. If you look at Paul's words in Romans chapter 229, uh, he's talking about the conduct of people who are Israelites and how they should represent themselves. And in Romans 2.29, Paul says, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but God. So when he says, he who is a Jew, it's a play on the word Judah. He is his praise, his praise is not from men, but from God. And so we saw it in the original language, we pick that up. He whom his brothers shall praise. Hey, God does not share his worship with anyone, does he? God, for one reason, it's not good for people to be worshipped. It's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I read an article on uh, Paul McCartney the other day, and they were saying what a nice guy he was. And uh, the final word to this article on the life of Paul McCartney says, you know, if anybody can be worshipped from the time he's 19 years old and not be a monster, that says an awful lot for him. For people to bow down at your feet and, uh, and worship you is probably the worst thing anybody could ever do for you. God does not share his worship. And this is a tip-off, one of many tip-offs, that the Messiah is coming from the tribe of Judah. And not only that, it's also a tip-off as to who the Messiah is. He is God in human flesh. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, indicating a victorious conquest. And when you have... When you have your enemy's neck, it's, it's over. Like, uh, you know, the lady in the movie who said, you know, the father may be the head, but the mother's the neck. And she can turn the head any way she wants to. The neck is very important. And Judah is victorious in David and in others, but especially in Jesus Christ, in the person of Christ. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. That's victory. And you shall bruise his heel. That is real victory. In the last part of verse 8 there, your father's children shall bow down before you. And this is a partial reference um, to the person of Judah. You know, we know that all of God's children, all of everybody, basically. Romans 14, 11 says, It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall shall confess to God. Your father's children will bow the knee. They will bow down before you. 
Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up, he bows down, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall rouse him. Holy Spirit repeats himself here. It's kind of interesting, as the Holy Spirit often does. From uh, Balaam's prophecy, 400 and some years later, Numbers chapter 24, verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations. His enemies, he shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. Exact words from, from Jacob's prophecy repeated by Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. And in Revelation at the opening of the seven seals, John says, So I wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seal. And that lion is none other than the person of Christ. In verse 10, it talks about this scepter thing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, this may be, honestly, the most important piece of prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah. We know that Judah is to lead Israel going into battle. Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass. The children of Israel asked the Lord, "Who, who shall go up first against the Canaanites and fight? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. In Judges chapter 20, at the end of the book of Judges, the children of Israel rose up and went to the house of God to inquire. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. Judah leads. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. From between his feet is a reference to his descendants, his children. And the Shiloh... If you read a lot of commentators, you're going to hear a lot of speculation about the intent of the name. Personally, I kind of lean in the direction of shalom for peace. But pretty plainly and clearly, it is a reference to the Messiah. Most commentators, well, it's very messianic. That's it. It's the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is Shiloh. He's the one that brings real peace. He is the one that we are waiting for and have been. These thousands of years we've waited for him and he came once and now we're waiting for him again and he will come a second time. Amazing, isn't it? The most amazing thing that's ever happened in the history of the human race happened twice. God comes to earth. Pretty amazing. The scepter and the lawgiver speaks of sovereign government and the Jewish people equate this among other things to be the right for instance, of capital punishment, which right the nation lost under the Romans at the time of the death of Herod the Great. Identifying the birth of Jesus Christ until Shiloh comes. Binding his donkey to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Binding his donkey to the vine. Who is the vine anyway? Well, John chapter 15 says Jesus is the vine. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. A sovereign who comes on a donkey is not unusual. It's interesting, I've heard 
uh, Bible teachers teach that when a king arrives in your presence on a donkey, it's a time of peace. And when a king arrives on a horse, it's a little bit more sketchy. It might be war. And I was reading some stuff that made me question whether that's really accurate. You know, you've got to be careful when you listen to Bible teachers. You really do. This is what Acts 17.11 is for. You need to search the scripture daily to see if what you're hearing is actually true. And there's some pretty reliable commentators out there that are saying that that whole idea about the horse and the donkey thing is not historical. It's not truly historical. Obviously, I don't know. I haven't done the research. But, but the bottom line is this. You know, I have a responsibility to understand what I'm looking at and to lean. And I don't need to make a differentiation between war or peace in this issue in order to address what the Lord is putting across in this particular scripture. We know, for instance, that Absalom, at his death in battle, he was riding on a donkey. He wasn't riding on a horse. So that gives good historical perspective to the question mark, you know. I want to know where these people... You know, I've heard people say that Simon Peter, before he goes to the house of Cornelius, staying at the house of uh, a man by the name of Simon, who is a tanner in the city of Joppa. And I've heard numerous Bible teachers say, and I've seen it in commentaries, that this guy is a Gentile. How could he possibly be a tanner and, and not be a Gentile dealing with the dead bodies of animals? Baloney. It's not true. Have you ever heard of a Jewish butcher? He's dealing with the dead bodies of animals all the time. You see, the, the unclean thing comes in when you deal with an animal that's like roadkill, found out on the side of the road. Okay, this tanner could have been an Orthodox Hasidic Jew that un undertook and did those things. And because of the importance of, you know, Peter getting all this flack for dwelling amongst Gentiles being in a house, eating with people at Cornelius' house with the Romans, I think it's pretty plain from the context of the scripture that this guy in Joppa, Simon, was a Jew, plainly and clearly. And there's no evidence to support otherwise, unless you want to read these Bible commentators that sometimes just want to make things up. Be careful. Be wise. Trust the scripture. Everything else, you know, we need, we need some evidence here. We need to know where this is coming from. He says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice, notice the mention of the donkey and his colt more specifically. Fascinating. Washes his garments in wine. And again, scholars, sometimes they make me wonder. Uh, maybe this is a reference to the industry of the vineyards in Judah. Maybe it's a good hand laundry. Hey, who washes their clothes in wine? Nobody with a brain. Nobody that wants to have clean clothes. However, clothing, on the other hand, in Scripture, is indicative of the works of believers, as in Revelation 19, 8. To her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
And anything washed in wine brings to mind the cleansing blood of Christ shed upon the cross, blood that came from the tribe of Judah. Right here. In verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. Or perhaps his eyes are colored by the wine. Both references to God's abundance poured out on this tribe and the people of his favor. In verse 13, we have Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. The order of birth deviates quite a bit throughout this prophecy. And I've heard some, some Bible commentators like to say that he just addressed these boys one by one in the order that they were standing around his bed as he went, because they're definitely not in the order of their birth. Um, this listing is, is going through all the children of Leah before the others, and maybe they were standing together. We don't know. Even then, not in order, Issachar is actually born before Zebulun. And uh, Zebulun means exalted. His position in the nation, unfortunately, was anything but. In the lottery in Joshua, the dividing of the nation, Zebulun is not placed by the sea. As Josh, as uh, Jacob says here, and he's not close to Sidon. Now, the commentators speculate that the language indicated in the direction of the sea or in the direction of Sidon. It can also be a reference to people selling their labor in Sidon and those who work at the sea, but still doesn't make them a haven for ships. And so we trust the Lord for the answer. I don't know. I, I have have no reason to understand this differently. And until the Lord provides one, I don't know. I have no idea. Issachar, in verse 14, is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Issachar is the fifth son of Leah, ninth child overall. His name means there is recompense as Leah was looking for some retribution in her difficult marriage and her difficult life. And Leah had a tough time, really tough time. The tribe wound up in central Israel, right on the Jordan River, right on actually the uh, west bank of the Jordan River. Um, wonderful place. Looks like the San Joaquin Valley right there. Really does. Pretty awesome. Uh, just northeast of Megiddo. Characterized as a donkey, renowned for selling their labor and being indentured servants. Because when you sold your labor routinely in this economy, you would sell yourself in slavery for under the law of Moses for seven years till the year of Jubilee. Proverbs 12.24 says, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. What does the proverb say? The diligence of a man is his precious possession. Those are good words to remember. The diligence of a man is his precious possession. Trust me, pretty soon you're going to get old and you're not going to have enough energy to do the stuff that you need to do. So get it done. Do it now. Following the deliverance of Gideon in the book of Judges, Gideon and then after him his son Abimelech, who killed all the rest of Gideon's kids, Abimelech was made king over the men of Shechem. 
And then he died in Thebes. And following his death in Judges 10.1 after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. So Tola judged Israel for about 20-some years from Ephraim without any major notable conflict, um, mid-12th century before the Lord. Then about 200 years later, after Tola, a man of Issachar, Baasha, took the throne of the northern kingdom, Israel, from his master, Nadab. In 1 Kings 15, 27, Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Now, Baasha and his son after him ruled the northern kingdom of Israel for about 25 years, and the son of Baasha was later murdered by Zimri. Uh, other than these two high points of leadership for Issachar, there's really nothing in the history of the tribe that really distinguishes them as an example in Israel. There are some overseers listed under David and Solomon, some accounts of a process of working and re- repatriating the tribe following the uh, Babylonian captivity, which, of course, during which time they were certainly slaves, as the pro- prophecy foretold. Slaves to the Babylonians and then to the Medes and then to the Persians. Verse 16, we have Dan. A judge shall, a Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Dan is a pretty unique historical account in Israel. Dan means a judge. As Rachel is childless, she encourages Jacob to take her handmaid Bilhah as wife and gives Jacob a fifth son, and Rachel considers herself justified, therefore, a judge. The tribe of Dan was originally placed to the west of Benjamin and Ephraim on the coast just north of the Philistines or the Amorites at that time. Maybe one of the reasons they were very unhappy with where they were placed is that the, the Amorites there were very formidable adversaries. Coming into the land of the tribal of Lotman, we have a record in Judges chapter 1, verse 34. The Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, and they would not allow them to come down into the valley. made things very tough on them. So following that account about 100 years later, the tribe of Dan was looking for an opportunity to relocate everybody. And true to the prophecy... They use a little bit of deception, a little deceit, some treachery to secure a new homeland in the north around the city of Laish, right very far north up above the Sea of Galilee in the, near the headwaters to the Jordan River. In Judges chapter 18, uh, they steal somebody's Levite to serve them. They begin actually instituting idolatry from the beginning, uh, which they would be judged for in the days to come. And one of the reasons that they are absent from the 144,000, the 12 tribes listed in the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. You find that Dan is absent. Why? There was a golden calf in Dan, wasn't there? Right. Where was the other golden calf? Bethel. Where is Bethel? Bethel's in Ephraim. And those are the two tribes that are left out of mention. Actually, Ephraim is there, but he's called Joseph. But of the 144,000, they're left out. Great example of Dan, the judge Samson. 
living near Judah, maybe in the original dwelling of the tribe. Also, he had a great affinity for the Philistines, either to kill them or to marry them. And while seeking his own vengeance, he powerfully illustrates the words of Jacob as a serpent attacking the rider and bringing about his fall. And uh, the, the end in, in actually having some success, conniving and scheming the end of his adversaries. In James chapter 1, verse 20, we have the question for the, or the statement, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so in the sight of God, Dan will surely be judged. And then somewhat unconnected here, really interestingly, this verse, verse 18, guys, Jacob literally, on his deathbed, he cries out aloud, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Life is waiting, guys, for all of us, but especially for Jacob. 130 years, over half a a continent he has traveled and still they will commute to the place of his burial. For the people of God, our purpose has changed later, little over the ages. We are waiting for the hand of the Lord to be revealed as he has said. We are, we are always waiting. We, we see confirmation. We see the hand of the Lord present with us. But there are things to come. Jacob doesn't lose sight of the goal. He knows where he's going. And so in verse 19, he he addresses Gad. A troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Not much to say about Gad. Gad means a troop. He is the eighth son, uh, the first of Leah's maid Zilpha. This is, you know, the handmaids were now bearing children. So Zilpha had Gad as her first child. As the nature of Jacob's words are all very poetic in the Hebrew, there are only six words in this verse in Hebrew. And four of them have the name Gad in them, which is very interesting. You know, so it's, you get the idea. It's Hebrew poetry. Living on the Transjordan, on the east side of the Jordan River, Gad was subject to constant attacks one of the very first to go into captivity, still a valiant force in the face of continual opposition, and they maintain their home until the Lord's purpose for them to be taken away for the 70 years of captivity. In verse 20, we have Asher. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Asher means happy or blessed. The eighth son, also the child of Leah's handmaid Zilpha. And the territory of Asher will be exceeding rich, located really between Galilee and Sidon on the coast, territory relied upon by kings from Solomon all the way to Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, following uh, the death of James and the escape from prison of Peter, Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon when they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because the, their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Again, evidence, Asher is blessed by the Lord. There are, there's an abundance of historical reference to the uh, fruitfulness of the territory. Naphtali is a deer let loose. 
He uses beautiful words. Naphtali means wrestlings or struggle. He is Jacob's sixth son, the child of Bilhah, the handmaiden of Rachel. He is renowned for, particularly historically, for Barak, the leader of the Israelite army under Deborah, who, uh, or if you're ever going to go to Israel, they're going to say Deborah. Um, uh, it's interesting. I remember sitting in a, listening to a tour guide looking off across Megiddo, and he says, you know, you can almost see the prophetess Deborah sitting underneath her, her date palm tree over there. And I'm thinking, who? Is this from the Apocrypha? No, Deborah. That's it. Anyway, Barak and Deborah sang a good deal. And honestly, the teaching of Jesus was uh, voiced in Naphtali. As, as surrounds more, it surrounds more than half of the Sea of Galilee. And so, you know, if you have to choose words for beauty, those are the best ones. And the song of Barak and Deborah is, is uh, notable as well. Pretty awesome stuff. Verse 22, the 11th son. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow, bow rather, his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Joseph, Yahweh has added, the 11th son of Jacob, the first child of his wife, Rachel. Joseph, folks, is his father's favorite. Gifted with dreams from his youth. Interestingly, dreams that nobody ever talks about again. Once they meet him as an adult, they don't bring up that. You remember that dream you had that we all gave you a hard time? Never mind. Uh, you know, when somebody's prime minister of Egypt, you're probably a little more cautious about what you say. Them, you know. They want to bring up old stuff, you know. They know that he is God's man of the hour. A fruitful bough in verse 22. A tree that blesses others, providing fruit. I have this avocado tree in my backyard, you know. and I put it in a patio a few years ago. And we like put concrete all around the roots and stuff and dug down around it. And I was just so concerned. I was going to kill this tree. It's beautiful. Great big avocado tree. And I just prayed and prayed, Lord, please bless this tree. Don't let anything bad. And I wrapped them with visqueen and, you know, just tried to protect it from that. I don't know what concrete's going to do to the roots of a tree like that. And I just, man, thing just avocados everywhere. It's amazing. so fruitful. I think it's mostly because of my wife, you know, because she's the Lord's girl. And he just it's just fruitful. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Wonderful thing to see. And I think, you know, again, you young guys, as you get older, you'll appreciate stuff like that. You, know? you don't start looking at trees till you're about 50, 55. Look at that. Is that a gorgeous tree? Look at that. That's, God made that tree, you know. When you're 30, you say, tree what? I don't know. I got to get married. Um, Joseph is his father's favorite. His branches run over the wall, not inhibited by limitations placed on him. The archers have bitterly grieved him and shot at him and hated him. The object of great, not, not minuscule, not picky uni, great opposition. You know, sometimes I think about what it would have been like to sell your brother into slavery like that and how those guys had to carry that. 
For years they thought about him crying. Because let me tell you, he was crying all over himself. Begging them. And they just sent him away. How do you live with yourself? How do you deal with that? Oh my gosh. What a hardness in your heart. And yet he was undeterred. He was undeterred by his brothers. He was undeterred by Potiphar and his wife. He was undeterred by the prison. I'm sure he had difficult days. Horrific, terrible, terrible days where he was on the verge of losing hope. But his hope was in the Lord. In verse 24, his bow remained in strength. And not only that, he is strengthened by the Lord himself in 24b. And the, the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Interesting that the language, you know, sometimes serves us so poorly. Here we understand the meaning because we know the context and know the scripture. We know that the shepherd and the stone is the Lord, right? But what if you, you know, you have a person, some group claiming, I don't know, claiming that, you know, Joseph was the first pope. And so... You know, and right, this is what it says right here. Joseph is the first. Therefore, reasoning from this verse that Joseph is the rock and the shepherd. Now, we know it's a reference to the Lord. You know, but at the same time, people will take you to Matthew sixteen eighteen. You know, may I also say that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The rock is Christ. The rock is the truth that Christ is the son of the living God. Peter is not the rock. He's not. He was a guy like me and you. He was somebody that God used in a beautiful way, just like he wants to use you in a beautiful way. From Joseph, we have Ephraim and Manasseh. And from Ephraim and Manasseh comes the most impressive lineage of any family, with the exception of Judah. Gideon and Jephthah from Manasseh. Joshua, Deborah, Samuel from Ephraim. Not to mention Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the lightning rod of the golden calves that led Israel astray. But still, all these men and women gifted and blessed by the Lord. You know, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, confused and messed up as he was, he was, he was anointed by God to lead that nation. No confusion here. The children of Israel know the Lord's mind. Verse 25, he says, By the God of your father who will help you. And the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, the blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breast, blessings of the womb. No confusion. Children of Israel know Israel's mind concerning the source of this favor. What they, what they have received, I think, fresh in all of their minds to see the people from the land of Canaan where they have come from to be in want and destitution. In Canaan, the place they've so recently escaped to come to Egypt, they saw their neighbors, their acquaintances, starving, their children going without. I mean, even, even the hardest heart will soften under such misery as this world provides us. And God's promise to Jacob of all that pertains to the blessing of heaven, the earth, the sea, to provide children for them. As you and I, we live in a nation and in a world, for that matter, that has fallen under the judgment of God Almighty. 
even though we ourselves personally as individuals are not under God's judgment, our nation is under God's judgment and we will reap consequences of this judgment. We will suffer because we are part of this nation under judgment. However, God, again, he is so great as he directs. He will cause even the difficulties and the hardships of our life to be for our benefit, even if we should suffer and die as a result of the judgment on this land. God will use it for our benefit in a powerful way and our loved ones and our children. And we have to stay focused on that fact. You right now today, excuse me, you have brothers and sisters that are in prison for their faith. In the Sudan, there are pastors in prison in Khartoum, Sudan, and have been there for months and months. There's our sister Asia Bibi in Pakistan, whose health is so terrible, if they announced that she was dead tomorrow, I would not be surprised. And so many in Iran, so many people all around the world. In Indonesia, there are several thousand believers that escaped persecution in Pakistan and are now in prison in Thailand, seeking refuge, seeking to get uh, some kind of refugee status from the United Nations, and the Thai government just doesn't know what to do with them, and they've thrown whole families into prison. Several thousand people. It's horrific. And every one of these people, every day, they're reminding one another that God is faithful, that he's good, that he's going to provide for them, he's going to take care of them, he's going to sustain them, even though some of them have died. God help us. 2 Timothy 3.11 says, Paul says, persecutions and afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured and out of all of them, the Lord has delivered me, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Notice, only all who desire to live godly. If that's not your desire... Well, there's a, there's a cost to be counted for that as well. Maybe a greater cost. In verse 26, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Always pointing back to the land. It's always about the land, guys. Always going back to remember that. When you hear about all these international organizations trying to give up parts of Israel to other groups, this is God's promise. He's going to make it happen. It's interesting. David says in Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God's innumerable blessings are to be on the head of Joseph, on him who was separate. The word separate there, separate from his brothers, the Hebrew word nazir, from which we get Nazarite, separated, sanctified, set apart, Nazarite, consecrated. Finally, son number 12, Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour prey, at night he shall divide the spoil. Son number 12, son of the right hand, Benjamin, not Benoni, what his mom wanted to name him, son of my sorrow. Jacob's 12th son, Rachel's second son, with whom she died in childbirth. 
As partial as Jacob is to the children of Rachel, you would think that his words for Benjamin would be a lot more positive than they are. Basically, what Jacob is doing, he's uttering a warning. He's saying, don't mess with Benjamin. Basically, I mean, that's kind of, you know, he's a, he's a ravenous wolf. He's dangerous. Stay away from him. And again, perfectly borne out in the history of the nation. In Judges 19 and 20, you know, you have that situation where uh, there's a Levite and his wife, his concubine is assaulted, murdered, and then he cuts her up into 12 pieces, sends her to, you know, great advertising, cuts her up in pieces, sends her to all 12 tribes. And so the whole nation comes together against Benjamin. They ask him to hand over the guys. They won't do it. Israel goes up against Benjamin, 400,000 men. Benjamin has 26,700. The first two days of the battle, the rest of the tribes of Israel lose 30,000 men. You know, so I mean, and then, of course, the next day, uh, they almost lose Benjamin. They, all the Benjamites are almost extinguished from being a tribe. Uh, and then you have Saul, uh, the first king who battles against the Philistines and Ammon and Amalek and uh, his son-in-law, David, and uh, was ruthless. He greatly increased the nation while really failing to serve the Lord as a servant to the people, while he enriched the nation, especially the tribe of Benjamin. He eventually relinquished the nation to a man after God's own heart, which was David. But the legacy of the nation continues as a point of interest, you know, taking the prophecy, applying it, to a son of Benjamin from the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus. There's another Benjamite who was a little bit of a ravenous wolf. You know, you see some interesting parallels in how tenacious, you know, he kind of had a no-prisoners mentality. In Acts chapter 13 on the island of Cyprus, he talks to the uh, uh, Bar-Jesus, the soothsayer, uh, who's there with Sergius Paulus. He says, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not be cease preserting the Lord's straight ways and, and you're going to be blind, you can't see for a while. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of... No prisoners. <laughs> he, said he wasn't very big, but, uh, you know, he, he was pretty impressive. So, in verses 28 through 33, we have the narrative's conclusion to the words of Jacob. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed them, each one, according to his own blessing. And you know, guys, this is really the desire of Jacob, to bless his family, to instruct them in the word of God. Some people you can bless with words of encouragement. Some people need to hear the hard truth. And that's, how do we know? And the truth is we don't. That's why we pray. God, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom, Lord. May the Lord bless you with the ability to build people up, to encourage people, to strengthen the hands of people around you, to encourage their hearts, to know what to say, to have wisdom from God, to encourage. There's, there's plenty of discouragement around, even for people who have failed, even for people who have dropped the ball big time and made a mess of their lives. Those people need to be encouraged. They need that according to God's direction. And may the Lord bless us to be able to do so and to help. Part of any encouragement, in addition to information, is accountability. In verse 29, he charged them and he said, 
I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Marmory, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite is a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. So, again, guys, he brings us back to the land and the possession that they have. The cave of Machpelah purchased the field from the Hittite as a burial for Sarah and then Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah. By the way, this is the very first time we have heard of Leah's death. Which kind of gives you a perspective of how significant Leah was in the family situation. Obviously, to her children, she was a very, very, very important person. But she was never really seen as the wife in the same way that Rachel was. And a very difficult life for this lady. As soon as Jacob, and then when the land is ours, you know, as soon as Jacob dies, they will take him. And then under, under Joshua, Joseph will be laid to rest there as well, waiting to rise. And so this is the issue. Your life has changed. You now live in a new nation. You're going to be here for many years. You must ingrain in the hearts and in the minds of your families their identity as the people of God and their expectation to occupy and to serve God in this land until the time of God's promise to be fulfilled. And to that end, the entire family travels to the burial to reinforce the issue of God's promise, of which we are the recipients. And this is why we read the scripture every single day. Every single day, we are in the word of God. Let us never forget. In verse 33, And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob was done. He had done his work. He followed the path that God set out for him. Like one of his his distant grandsons later said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4.7 It's interesting, you know, back to verse 24, as he's speaking of Joseph, you know, he says, his, his bow remained in strength. His arms and hands remained strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I want you to understand. Genesis chapter 49, verse 24, is the very first place in the Bible that God is ever spoken of as a stone. It's the very first place in the Bible that God is ever spoken of as a shepherd. Right there. That's where those references began. The one that is immovable, the one that provides protection. Psalm 61, David writes, 
Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I cry to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. And I will abide in your tabernacle forever. Amen. And then again, if you'll go back a little bit further to verse 18, where Jacob cries out loud. He says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. What have I waited for? What have I waited for? It's interesting, you know. The New Testament tells us that in the name of Jesus, the Gentiles will trust. Matthew 12, 21. Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, the name of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. What do you believe about the name of Jesus? Well, the name of Jesus, Jesus, of course, is the English transliteration that we have. It's a contraction of Yeshua in Hebrew. And Yeshua is a contraction. It's really Yahweh Shua, which is God is salvation. So when you believe in the name of Jesus, you believe God is salvation. You're believing in his name. Well, gentlemen... In verse 18, I have waited for your Yahshua, O Lord. The name of Jesus is in Genesis chapter 49, verse 18. Very appropriate place for him to extol the truth. Jacob trusts in the Lord. The same as us. He is surrounded on every side by the world, the devil, and the flesh. But Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Jacob doesn't lose sight of his goal. He knows where he's going. Lord, help us to be so confident. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for this book, Lord, for the prophecy of your servant. Lord, the amazing and wonderful things that... You intend for us every single day. Lord, strengthen our hearts in the truth. Anoint us as your servants to bless and encourage. Father, even to rebuke. And Father, to hold accountable our brothers and sisters. To love one another as your spirit intends. Father, guide us. Bless us. Sustain us. And Father, make us a powerful blessing to our families, Lord. Especially, Lord, those, our loved ones that do not know you. We lift them to you this night. Right now, Father, we pray for them. Let your Holy Spirit speak to their hearts. Draw them to the truth. Father, place witnesses of Christ before them that they will hear. Open their hearts. And, Father, guide us as your servants in these last days. And we do love you and we thank you again for the book of Genesis. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.